Welcome to Chatting About Change with Dr. Jim Maddox. I'm a professor, OD consultant, and change strategist, helping individuals and organizations experience life to the fullest and engaging in positive transformational change. In addition to this podcast, please check out my latest book, Embracing Resistance to Change, Facilitating Change Differently Through the Paradox of Resistance, available now through Amazon and barnesandnoble.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of Chatting About Change with Dr. Jim Maddox. Today I'm visiting with Kelly Grant and I'm going to let her um, provide the rest of her introduction and tell us a little bit of herself and her story. So Kelly, how are you today? I'm good. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's fun catching up. So yeah, just a little backstory. Kelly and I met um, through a consulting engagement that I had uh, with an organization that she was part of at the time. And so, and that was probably, I don't know, a dozen years ago. And so we've kind of stayed in touch off and on since then. So I'm looking forward to, to chatting. So yeah, let, let you tell a little bit of your story, a little bit of your background. Sure. Um, So currently I am a doctoral candidate at Kansas State University. Um, I am in the dissertation phase, so I'm working on that right now. Um, And, you know, just kind of a backstory on how I got to even getting a PhD because I'm a non-traditional student. I am am the oldest person um, in my cohort and I have adult children and, um, you know, kind of didn't fit the mold of the other students that were there. So um, I had a 15-year career working in government, um, a little bit for the state level, and then uh, I spent eight years for at the county level. And um, the first part of my career was in, uh, I worked for a university police department. And so I got kind of some exposure there to how that that type of organization works. Um, my first two degrees are in criminal justice uh, with emphasis in sociology um, and a minor in sociology. And then I um, switched over to working for the county, the local county government, and I held many positions there. I started at a very entry-level position, um, and I worked my way up where we met. I was the training manager for the entire organization, um, and then I was, I ended as a budget analyst there, so looking at um, budget priorities and, um, you know, looking at how we were spending taxpayer dollars. I left that organization not necessarily because I wanted to, but I had an opportunity presented to me to run a um, at-home business. And so I, um, earlier in my life, had missed out a lot on my kids' early years. Um, I was a single mom. You know, I just, I didn't have the experience of being able to be at all their things. And they were at babysitters all the time. And Um, So I took the opportunity and worked in a business where um, I generated all of my income, which was a totally different experience than working for the government. Um, But I got to do all of the things uh, that I wanted to do with my kids through their middle school and high school years. Um, Towards the end of their high school years, I had an opportunity presented to me again to become a doctoral student at Kansas State University. And I I kind of resisted that for a little bit, um, but it is something I had always wanted to do. 
Um, Kansas State University has a sociology program, not a criminal justice program. Uh, so it's a bit of a different focus. Um, and I was on the fast track. I completed all my courses in two years. I tested in one year and um, was really proud that I had passed my tests in each area um, on the first try. Uh, and then 2020 came and that's when I started my dissertation phase and COVID. Oh, what timing. Yeah, COVID hit. Um, so I've had a lot of setbacks actually in my dissertation because my um, I was kind of a unique student. I knew what I wanted to do the minute I walked in the door. Uh, and nobody really saw my vision until they saw my vision. And then they were like, okay, all right, we see where you're going with this. Um, but my initial probably four or five plans were all messed up by COVID in different ways. So I, you know, I had to switch plans and then something else would happen with COVID. And then we had staffing shortages. And then we, you know, we just had all these different things that kept hitting um, my project. And I wasn't the only one. Um, we were all struggling with this. Um, but I now have landed a research site uh, in my local community. Um, I have a pending research contract. Um, I'm writing, I got my intro completely finished and solidified um, starting on my next chapter today. Um, so it has kind of picked up some momentum and I'm, I'm feeling better about that, so. So talk a little bit about that vision because I remember several years ago, you, you kind of approached me and said, hey, here's what I'm passionate about. What do you think, do you think I have what it takes to, to be a doc student? And I was like, yes, hell yes. <laughs> yeah, the only thing holding you back is your own, you know, whatever barriers you put up for yourself. And so, um, yeah, and so it's been exciting watching you kind of progress. And so, um, yeah, talk a little bit about that vision. Sure. Thank you for that. Um, and I do remember your words of encouragement and um, I'm, I'm thankful for those um, along the way. I you probably curse me. You, you probably curse me sometimes though, when you're <laughs> at, a, at a wall with the dissertation thinking, oh my God, why did you tell me I could do this? Yeah. I wonder why anyone thinks I can do it sometimes, including myself. Um, so I, uh, I have stayed connected to the academic world through adjunct teaching. So even though I left the government world, I, I was an adjunct instructor from 2011 to 2021. So for 10 years, um, part of that was at uh, where I got my first two degrees. And then part of that was at Kansas State University um, through my program. And when I came into um, the program, uh, my business is in health and wellness coaching. And I also do a little bit of consulting as well in different areas, but um, health and wellness coaching. I used to weigh 320 pounds. Um, I did lose a ton of weight, as you know, and totally changed my lifestyle. And I was given a tool to help other people with that. And as I began to work with people, and we were talking earlier, I've worked with over a thousand people through that business. Um, I, I, it's, it's kind of like my researcher self that's always been there started making connections, right? I mean, working with people in that capacity is similar to qualitative research in a way. Um, you start making these connections and you start understanding why people struggle with their weight, um, what social structures have held them back from being a healthy, being as healthy as they want to be. Um, and so I kind of started reflecting on my own experience. And when I was a teenager, I got into 
some trouble and was punished and I was sent to a boarding school. And um, at that boarding school, uh, I wasn't prison. When I talk to women in prison, they often say, well, that sounds like prison because <laughs> there's a lot of uh, similarities in, you know, wearing a uniform, getting locked in at night, you know, these kinds of things. So <clears throat> one of the things that I realized, though, is that that's when my weight struggles started, is that I was in a position where I didn't have control over my food anymore. Um, I also was dealing with emotional pain. Um, and so you know, food was a comfort for that. Um, and, you know, not having control over your food and eating a standard menu or whatever, then you're at the hands of not only nutritional value, but calorie intake. So looking back on that, that's where it kind of started for me was that I kind of lost control over my food environment, but I also kind of lost control over my ability. My coping skills were lacking um, for what I was facing, uh, which was, you know, abandonment, rejection, you know, these kinds of things. So fast forward through my criminal justice degrees, um, I took a real interest in prisons. Um, my kid's dad actually went to prison. So I had some experience from that aspect of being a family member, um, you know, keeping the relationship between my kid's dad and them intact, um, which I'm very glad I did. They're very close now and I'm thankful for that. Um, but I became somewhat fascinated with them. So when I talked to you and when I um, started thinking about this, uh, I wanted to look at the intersection of food in the criminal justice system. Now there's lots of places that that could be studied. I think we could look at food with police officers. Um, we could look at food um, in, in different various places uh, along the way, but my mo main interest was in prison. And so I hadn't fully developed the idea, but everybody, when I kind of walked into K-State and, you know, this isn't a criticism at all, but they were like, what, like, <laughs> you know, like what, like that doesn't even, you want to look at food in the criminal justice system. So, um, you know, food is a, a, a social structure in and of itself, pretty much, you know, it's, it's our, it's part of our culture. It's, it's symbolic, um, you know, it's relationship building. Um, and so I wanted to see what did people in prison think about these kinds of ideas um, in that space that they were in. So that is the focus of my dissertation. And I actually have a book chapter that just got accepted um, looking at food in, for women in who are incarcerated. Wow, that's exciting. It's so impactful. And, and from a dissertation standpoint, the IRB process for doing research with a prison population and health, health, health field, you know, with the food piece, what a double combination of hoops to jump through. Yeah, so I actually serve on an IRB, um, not my university's our IRB, but uh, my lo the local university, I am actually their prison expert. So I'm trying, so I, it's been good for me because um, I can then anticipate some of the questions that are going to be asked and that kind of stuff. But yes, it's going to be, there are going to be hoops to jump through. Um, we haven't started that process yet. Um, so yeah, it'll be, it'll be interesting. So what are some of the, the, the things that you found through that work and through your, your um, coaching 
what are just what are some of the things that you're finding or um and, and what maybe what's what really has changed or evolved in that area of, of study and application? Well, so yeah, that's a good question. Um, so I was telling you earlier, I was so concerned that I would not be able to add to the body of knowledge, right? And um, it turns out I'm going to add in two different ways um, because I actually am not going to go into a prison. That's where I wanted to go initially, um, but I am going to go into a residential facility that is used as a punishment, um, but a diversion from prison. Our prisons are full. Um, and so this is kind of like the last stop of um, before you go to prison. If you can't make it here, you gotta go. Um, and they are there in many ways, the same as an incarcerated population, except they are left let out to go job seek and hold jobs. Um, but that's all the only reason they get let out of the facility. So they, they do eat there. Um, and um, the, the thing that it has developed out of this is that there are only a handful of these residential facilities in the United States that are used as in this exact way. Uh, we have a lot of, uh, treatment oriented residential facilities. So if you have drug and substance use issues there, they have a lot of residential facilities for that. <clears throat> and we have, um, a lot of re-entry uh, residential facilities. So used on the back end of coming out of prison in order to kind of step down into the community uh, instead of going straight to the community and having, you know, some consequences that come with that. But this exact type of residential facility is pretty rare. And um, right now, to date, um, I'm not quite done with my search, but to date, I can't find any research on this exact type of facility. The other two facilities I can find all kinds of things on, but this exact type I can't. Um, and further, you can't find food issues in any kind of facility like that. There is a, there is a small, uh, uh, you know, collection of research um, articles on food in prison. Um, they're pretty consistent across the board. It sucks. People hate it, you know, like all of these things. So, one thing that has developed that I think I want to look at more is the idea that I am going to take a gendered aspect to this, um, not completely gendered in my personal study, but at some point I may look at this a little bit further. Um, and I kind of started looking at it for my book chapter that is getting published. Um, but this idea that women um, are socialized differently around food from the very beginning. The, the toys that we play with, the role models that we have, the people that are preparing our food, serving our food. Um, you know, I think we've seen a little bit of more equity in that over time, but it's still pretty common that the mom's in charge of the food. The woman is in charge of the food, especially in family structures. So, um, I, I don't, I, I can't say this with hundred percent certainty, but uh, the more I've read, the more I've talked to people, the more I've thought about it. And what I want to look at at some point is the idea that moving women into a, what I'm calling a carceral food way, uh, where it's highly controlled, um, you know, and, and removes all choices, removes all identity related to food. Um, I, 
would argue that that is potentially a hidden harm or a, an additional punishment for women that men don't experience in the same way. Um, women are very, very creative with food uh, in prison. We've got cookbooks and uh, there's a couple of published ones, but I've been getting my hands on ones that are like papers with staples in them um, that are just so creative. And, um, you know, the other thing that I think could develop out of this is the idea that in some ways the institution participates in inmate deviance. And I'm putting that in air quotes because to me it's not deviance, but um, for prison regulations, like you only have access to certain kinds of foods, certain amounts of foods, you know, all this stuff. But yet you look at a recipe book and there is there are ingredients in there that are not readily available to inmates. They would have been, they would have had to receive these ingredients from the institution. Um, so it's kind of, and, and then they sell these cookbooks for, um, you know, fundraising or whatever. But it's interesting to look at an institution so focused on power and control as also participating in some level of deviance with the um, inmates so that they can produce something that wouldn't have otherwise exist. And an example of that would be peach cobbler. Inmates do not have have access to peaches. It's not on a commissary list. It's not. So they would have had to have been given this type of food from the institution and um, or stolen it. But I'm guessing if it's in the recipe book, they didn't steal it. Right. Um, so, you know, I, I think we could also look at how creative women are in their resistance to the carceral food way. Um, they're create, they're getting the, the organization, they're getting the institution to participate with them. They're creating new recipes. Men, on the other hand, it's not that they aren't creative at all, but their typical, um, you know, documented way of dealing with food is they do have chefs, they do have cooks that cook in their cells and stuff, but it, it's more focused on like um, ramen, for example, and all the different ways that you can make ramen. And there are some incredibly unique ways that you can make ramen. <laughs> um, My daughter, I think, has mastered most of those. Yeah, yeah. So, um, and I actually have a cookbook from inmates that is a whole bunch of ramen recipes. Oh, wow. um, yeah, that one's pu published mainstream. Um, and there is the, the cool part about that book is though it does talk about the um, connection that is made between rivals in prison during a riot um, and the connection is forged with food. So we see how powerful of a tool this is um, over and over and over again. I haven't yet seen anything like peach cobbler coming out of men's prisons. And I'm not saying that they don't make that, but I haven't seen anything like that yet. So, um, but, but men struggle with the food too. Uh, that's not, that's, it's not this, maybe the same struggle, but they are struggling as well. Do you think the, um, uh, as a population, the incarcerated women, do you think their challenges around food are magnified through prison or, or manifest during prison, or is it manifest after they're released? That's a great question. So, and uh, it's got a couple of facets to the answer. So uh, as part of the book 
chapter, I asked that question uh, to women through a survey. And what we found was that women actually came from some pretty, um, I don't want to say bad, I don't like the word bad, but challenging uh, food environments on the outside. They were on welfare, they didn't have access to fresh foods all the time, Um, you know, poverty, all the things that uh, can cause challenges to how someone eats. They came from pretty uh, terrible conditions. They come into prison and it's worse is the the results of our survey is that this is actually worse than where I came from. Um, and it's a pretty you know significant finding to say that, okay, well, you were out here in society having this terrible experience with poverty and not able to eat well. And then we put you into a facility where we are charged with your care and your well-being. And we the food system is worse. Um, so, so that was one aspect. Of like it that. becomes part of the punishment. Right. Yeah. That's what I'm saying is that, um, and when, and when we, from a social sociological perspective, we look at prisons as total institutions, everything is designed, um, to impose some sort of punishment. Um, and especially, you know, and that ebbs and flows with where we're at as a society. I mean, sometimes we're more rehabilitation focused and sometimes we're not. Um, and so yes, and that's my argument is that for women, this is actually a, a greater punishment than for men. Um, because of their identity, stripping a piece of their identity away, um, it, which we do anyways, right? We turn everything into numbers. We don't, we use last names. We, yeah, use, we humanize them. Yes. Yeah. And so the other aspect of what you asked is that coming out of prison, uh, there actually has been some research done on women coming out of prison who have struggled tremendously with the weight gain because they gain weight in prison. And so when they're coming out of prison, they have these additional pounds and they are reporting that this makes it difficult for them to find a job. Their confidence is down. You know, they don't know how to get it off. They don't know how to lose the weight. They don't, they don't feel good. Um, so they're coming out of this highly controlled food system uh, back into society and it's having impacts and implications that, you know, we want people to not come back to prison, but you know, if I don't have the confidence to go get a job or, you know, or what if I get out and I, I have a heart attack from the way I've been eating for the last 10 years uh, and I don't have, I don't have insurance. Like that's part that again, falls to society to pick up that bill. And, you know, all of those consequences that I don't think we're considering if we would just improve the food a little bit. So that really speaks to at a policy level. Um, and it's, it's, so would that, would those changes need to take place at the state level or um, at the federal level or at the county level? What, where, where do you intervene in the system? Well, that's a great question. Um, I, it, it can happen at all levels. Um, and I'm somewhat of an idealist when it comes to things like this, right? Like we can do it on every level. However, I think we have to start small first and um, policy is something that I have um, worked on in my local community. Um, a few times uh, back when I was working for the government, I worked on policy issues. And so 
I think that in my dissertation, the focus is policy change, which makes my dissertation a little bit different than a lot of sociology um, majors because they're more theoretical, they're more, you know, um, not necessarily as applied. And they're both important, right? Like, so the ideas are important, but the application of ideas is important too. So um, I've been working with my chair to really take a policy focus as my end game. Um, so of course I have to write the dissertation. I've got to do the theory work. I've got, you know, you got to do all the things. Um, but the end game would be to change the food in our local facility. Um, as part of the research design, we're actually going to um, do an intervention. And this is all pending this research contract, right? Like fingers crossed, there's no more COVID <laughs> issues. But, um, but the proposal in the hands of the agency right now suggests that we take the food that is being served on the juvenile side. Um, they, they are in charge of the juvenile system and they cook everything in house. Um, they cover all the food groups. Um, it's just a much, it's, it's more visually pleasing, uh, than what is being served in the facility now, which is jail food. Um, and just as a side note, I've eaten in all these facilities in the jails in the prisons, um, in the juvenile facility, um, I've gone and literally sat down and eaten this food, whatever they're serving that day. Right. And it, I, I, I typically, especially out of the prisons and jails, have a stomach ache, don't feel good, you know, like it's, it's tough on the system. So the intervention for my dissertation would be to swap out the food and see if we can notice a difference. Um, I'm using feminist methodology, qualitative methodology um, to talk to people pre-intervention, post-intervention, um, and then make the argument for why the local government should spend a little bit more, not a lot, but a little bit more on the food and what that could mean for their outcomes and for, fu for future research. Yeah, the outcomes piece is, I think that's going to, that's the real selling point. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think idealistically, you'd like the selling point to be that it humanizes and, and, and gives people more control over their over their lives. And it's, yeah, it's, it's more humane and compassionate. Um, but I think what, what probably will get attention is, is the outcomes where, you know, where it's going to impact saving the community money in the long run. You know, it kind of reminds me of that Maytag repair commercial unit um, or not, no Midas pay me now or pay me later. Yep. And so, um, but I don't think we always look at, at those longer term, bigger picture costs. Yeah. No, I would agree with you a hundred percent, um, on that. And, you know, what I have found kind of fun about getting a PhD is it's taught me to think differently. Um, so, you know, in what you just said, uh, I agree with you. And every time that I go to have a conversation that's difficult or change oriented, um, I'm working to think of all of their arguments first. Right. And so, um, where does my, how does my argument respond to what I anticipate their argument to be? And I, I think that you're right. Like, um, I could go in there and just say, we should do a human uh, a humanization of our system through this policy work. And 
it's just not what, uh, it won't be, the questions I'll get asked are exactly in line with what you're saying of how does this save us money? Um, you're asking us to spend more money on food. Well, where's the cost saving that? Um, so I'm gonna have to really kind of dig into some of those questions um, in, in, in order to even make the argument that we should do this. Yeah, I think there's probably this mindset and at, at a lot of levels of, well, if they wanted to eat good, they shouldn't have come to prison. Or if they, you know, they, that was the choice they made by, you know, whatever. And, oh, we're just making prison soft now. Or, you know, that whole range of, of, of really sad um, rationalizations for um, not changing the system. And for, um, yeah, and, and justifying the, um, just the, the quality and the whole, whole way food is, is controlled or, or uh, not controlled. Yeah. And, you know, we're doing it in other countries. Um, other, other countries are doing it. We aren't doing it in other countries, but other countries are doing it. Other countries have cooking programs. They're growing their food. And we have some places that are growing food here too. Um, it's just not the norm. It's not, it's kind of the exception and not the standard. Um, you know, back last year when um, one of the individuals who um, was at the um, Washington DC situation that we had, he went to jail um, and I think he was in Arizona. Um, Arizona is notoriously, notoriously bad about their food. Uh, they serve rotten food, they serve uncooked food. Um, it's really sad. Um, but this individual petitioned um, the courts to receive an organic diet. And, you know, my first knee jerk reaction was like, what? Like, you know how long people have been fighting for better food and you just show up and get an organic diet? Like, what? I don't understand, you know, but I, I settled down and thought about it. And in, in, a, in essence, it helped the cause, um, you know, in terms of setting a precedent, in terms of saying, um, well, if we can do it in, over here in this one situation, why can't we do it in other situations? Um, and so it actually probably was a good thing that it happened. Um, like I said, my first reaction was to be upset because uh, people have been fighting and speaking up about food for a long time. Um, so I think that, you know, the more that we can point to situations like that, the more we can say, okay, really, is this about, like, are we, are we into like the total punishment business here? Like we incarcerate more people than any other country in the world. Um, we don't really have a rehabilitation focus collectively. It's more about retribution or incapacitation. Um, and so like, what business do we really want to be in? And, you know, people have been making these arguments for a long time, but I guess at some point, as hopeless idealists think it'll click, right? And, <laughs> you know, and I was talking to a, a person who, um, um, this was at a conference several months ago, who had some prison experience, and, and they, they just, they broke it down to this real simple statement. They said, unless the person's got a life sentence, or is on death row, they're going to be released from prison eventually. And do you want a hardened criminal as, as your next door neighbor? Or do you want somebody who's now a good citizen 
and contributing member of society because they're going to come out of the system and and we can you know we collectively as a society have that have have control over that system uh, not any one person but yeah so that so that idea of of rehabilitation but i think it's deeply ingrained in our culture the sense of of punishment and justice and you know that they should have to pay for their crime and um and so it just yeah it's what we have the largest incarceration numbers of any any country in the world and our solution has been to just build more prisons yep yeah, and, and and you're right. I, I think I haven't looked up the statistic recently, but uh, when I was teaching in criminal justice courses, I did look it up, and uh, you know, nine it was like ninety five percent of people are getting back out of prison, so they're not staying there forever. You know, um, my kid's dad's a perfect example of that. He he went in, but he came out, and he totally changed his life. Um, but it took a lot of support. It took a lot of um, you know encouragement. It took a lot of you know, people, even though he and I were not in a relationship or anything, but me allowing him relationship with his kids, like, you know, giving him reasons to figure this out. And he's quite successful now um, in everything that he does. And, you know, there's a lot of people out there like that, um, that we don't hear from very often because there's such shame and stigma around, um, you know, having been in prison. And, uh, you know, I do think that when we look at the people who end up in prison, a lot of times we're talking about people who have had difficult lives. They've had extreme traumas. They've had, you know, um, I mean, I've read case studies before where I'm like, well, what other choice was there? <laughs> you know, like, how do you, how do you make any other choice than what this person was presented with? And, um, and that doesn't mean that I don't think that people should be punished because I do think we have, um, we have, we have mechanisms in place in society that can regulate criminal behavior. I just don't, I still don't understand, even at this point in my life, why we are looking for total punishment of the human being um, instead of correction of the behavior. Yeah, and that's a that's a that's at the heart of the of the whole conversation right there, and that's very philosophical of of just how people view other human beings, how 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 we view um, us us people as a society. Well, yeah, and something else I would tell my students all the time too, like I mean most of us are one decision away from getting in trouble. Like, you know, on some level, it doesn't, I'm not saying necessarily prison time, but you could be arrested. You could be, you know, like a lot of things could happen. And, you know, I would challenge my students to think about times they got away with something. And, you know, I don't know a single person, not a single person in my entire life that hasn't gotten away with something. Um, it's just, it's just the nature of the beast, right? It's who are we are catching. Um, and that kind of gets into who are we watching? What are we, you know, that is a different yeah, topic, yeah. but yeah. And that's not a level that's not evenly distributed across society either. No. So, so Kelly, what's kind of the next step then in your, in your research? 
Uh, well, directly after I hang up here, um, I'm going to get started on my next chapter, uh, which is the lit review. Um, and I'm just going to keep plugging away at that. Uh, I've had so many setbacks in this dissertation that I, you know, I made a social media post that I've been ready to quit more than once. I've, I've cried. I've, I've wanted to throw in the towel. Um, I sometimes don't even know how I got back up. Um, I have literally, um, probably at least professionally, not personally, but professionally, I don't think I've ever done anything quite this hard. <laughs> so, um, so I'm going to keep plugging away at it. Um, and I'm excited about it. I've got, um, a new chair that I'm working with and she's, um, she's got great energy. She keeps me going she gives me deadlines. Um, and, and that really helps. So I think once I graduate with this degree, my, my end game at my, um, you know, where I really want to end up is working and consulting on policy work. Um, and not necessarily just in the criminal justice system. I mean, I also have a plethora of experience in government systems and um, diversity, equity, and inclusion, you know, these different areas where um, I've done other work in. Um, so yeah, that's, that's what I'm hoping to do eventually. Well, that's exciting. Yeah. Do not, do not quit. No matter how dark or daunting it gets, um, society needs the work you're doing. And so there's, there's, yeah, there's, there's some, some young um, female that's going to be dealt a, a crummy hand and is going to end up incarcerated and your work can literally save that person's life. So Thank you. I appreciate that. I uh, sometimes think that we forget the impact our work can have. And so, you know, for anybody that's listening or whatever, like um, I tend to diminish the impact and, you know, it's taken a collective group of people who've made it through the PhD gauntlet um, to continue to encourage me, reach out to me. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a hard process, but I, I do think that uh, there is value in what I'm doing. And that is one reason that I keep showing up. Yeah. Keep plugging away. Yeah, I will. Yeah, we'll have, we could have a whole nother talk just on a pep talk around surviving the, the dissertation process. So. Yeah, absolutely. Like I thought I knew what I was getting into, but, <laughs> um, and it wasn't, you know, classes and testing was, a breeze it was it's been this situation that's, that's what I tell my doctoral students I said the dissertation's a whole nother animal yep and so you just have to um, go into it with that mindset and then yeah, and be be persistent well and I also think that you know we don't really understand how tired we are after knocking out all the hours in two years and taking two majorly huge tests in one year. Like you think, oh, okay, I'm ready for the dissertation. No, yeah. I'm tired. No, I'm no. tired. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're ready for a break. It's like, okay, this was, yeah. And, and then, but the longer break you take, then the harder it is to like gear back up. You're right. And, and, you know, you basically essentially finish a master's degree in three years and then hit this dissertation phase. And um, yeah, you, I do think you have to keep going because, um, you know, COVID was a unique set of circumstances for me and my cohort. Um, but I know that all people I've talked to have discussed how difficult this stage of the journey is. So, yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Just yeah. Keep keep that end goal in mind. I will. Thank you. So, I really appreciate really, having me on. Yeah. Thank you for being a guest. I think this will be really um, insightful for uh, for people both on a societal level and then also just on a grad school level. So uh, on so many different perspectives. So this has been and it's it's been fun catching up and I really appreciate your your time. And um, yeah, next time we talk, we'll be talking about you moving on to chapter three. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I can't wait. And that's, that's actually going to be one of my favorite chapters because that's my theory chapter. And I'm really excited about the um, integration of theory that I'm doing for this project. Well, that's exciting. You're doing great work. Thank you. All right. Take care. You too. Bye. Bye. I hope you've enjoyed listening to Chatting About Change with Dr. Jim Maddox. If you want to connect more, you can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook, and at my website, drjimmaddox.com. Thanks for listening.